Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are just one week away from the completion of this Bible study series titled, Elijah, a Man of Conviction. And today's lesson, number nine in the series, is titled, The Son of Ahab. This lesson contains so much information regarding what is happening to our world and our country and our neighborhoods in the 20th century, and you will be amazed with the information which class teacher Doug Brady brings to this lesson. You will want to have your Bible open to 2 Kings chapter 1. The Believer's Bible class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. The Believer's Bible class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. This class is made out of people who want to dig deeply into the scriptures, and our class continues to grow each and every week. We would certainly welcome your visit to our class on any Sunday morning. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so open your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 1. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Now, we are in a study of Elijah, the prophet. We have this week and one more. Now, I've wanted, I've, I've devised a little test I mean, uh, to start with here to give us a little understanding of how well you know, how much you know about Elijah. Now, I want everybody not to yell out any answers, but just to raise your hands. That's what we're going to do. Is there anybody here that knows how Elijah dies? Anybody? Raise your hand if you know how Elijah dies. All right. Yes, ma'am. He doesn't? I think Elijah is going to be killed and left on the streets of Jerusalem for three days. Oh, you see. All right. Now, you said that he was going to, not going to die. He is one of two men who didn't die originally. But how does he get up into heaven? Does anybody know? I'm hearing chariots. I heard a whirlwind. Somebody is inaccurate, and most people think he goes up in a chariot, but eh, that's wrong. No chariots. The chariot is used to separate Elijah from Elisha. But we can check that out next week when we talk about that. Now, last week we talked about a vineyard. Whose vineyard was it? Naboth's. And Ahab wanted that vineyard. Jezebel the wicked... Jezebel, the whore of Israel, in my opinion, she was the one who came up with a very insidious plan to just kill Naboth and his progeny so that the state could acquire that land. Now, 
He's in there, Ahab is, admiring his vineyard when who shows up? Elijah, the man who's been rehardened and retooled and rehoned by God, and he's now calling him back after five years of sitting on the sidelines. And he's called him back to active duty, and he shows up at that vineyard. Do you remember what he tells Ahab? He says, because you did this, you're going to die. Not only going to die, but the dogs are going to lick up your blood in the same place where they licked up Naboth's blood. Now that's kind of serious. That would be in Samaria, he said that would happen, in the, the capital city of Samaria. In addition to that, he didn't leave Jezebel out. He told Ahab, you need to tell your wife, the dogs are going to eat her in the valley or in outside the town of Jezreel. Now, that seems highly unlikely for a queen of Israel to have dogs eat her. But that was the prophecy. Now, before we start, let's have a word of God. Father, I pray that as we come to you and we speak to you, that you will direct what I say. Even though I'm going to show some terrible things going on in our nation, I pray today that you will help me to do it in a way that pleases you. I pray, Father, that you will keep the distractions from the room today and that you will speak to our hearts and you will allow the Word of God to be active and living and cutting into our souls so that we can understand these important principles here demonstrated in Elijah's life and those that he has to deal with. A pagan government that wants everything, it wants as much as it can to eliminate Elijah and his influence in the kingdom. So I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we want to talk about Ahab's son today, but before we do, I had to tell you about what happens as a result of those two prophecies. I put the exact passages where they're fulfilled as an addendum to your notes but you will see that this is what happened. There came a time when Ahab wanted to attack Syria or Aram. And he got Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to join with him. And they went into battle. Now, Ahab, remembering this prophecy, decided to disguise himself and dress like a common soldier in his chariot, a common charioteer. Didn't dress like the king. But then one of the Syrians just decided to draw their bow and shoot it in the direction of the Israeli forces. And that arrow just went over there. But somebody's hand was on that arrow and directed it right towards King Ahab. But now Ahab is covered with armor. How is that arrow going to pierce that armor? It's not. But instead, Jerry will show you, you see that arrow? It went right through a chink in his armor, a, where the two plates are joined, it penetrated through. And as it did, Ahab started to bleed. And he said, I'm wounded. And he said, take me back. Take me to safety. But before he could get to a surgeon or someone who could help him, he bled out. He filled the chariot with his blood. And they took it to the pool of Samaria, where they had cleaned up for Naboth. And dumped it out, and the dogs lipped up his blood. 
just as God had prophesied through the prophet Elijah. Now, you go a little farther, he's now dead. And his son, Abijah, is going to take over the throne. But Abijah's not going to stay on there too long. Because you remember a long time back, we didn't say too much about this, but you remember when Elijah was on Mount Horeb, God told him to do certain things. And one of the things he said is, anoint Jehu king over Israel. Well, he was not a descendant of Ahab, but he appointed him nonetheless. So Abijah comes, he dies, you're going to see today, a guy named Joram takes his place because Ahab didn't have any other descendants. Jehu kills Zoram and he names himself king and he becomes king over Israel. He then knows he, there's someone he has to deal with and that's Jezebel. And she is holed up in a tower in Jezreel. And so Jehu takes his chariot over there. Now she hears he's coming. So what does she do? She puts on her best weapons. Most seductive dress, most seductive makeup, most seductive whatever. And she's there up in the top of the tower, leaning out the window, trying to seduce Jehu. And Jehu says, is there anybody else up there? And two servants say, yeah. He says, throw her out. They throw her out. Now, from what I understand, she had great form coming down. She just couldn't stick the landing. Jehu walks over her, goes in the tower, and eats a meal. As he's eating, though, he says, you know what? She was a queen. She deserves a proper burial. Go out there, get her body, prepare it for burial, and uh, we'll bury her. And they come back and they say, well, all we could find is the skull, the hands, and the feet, because the dogs ate the rest of her. Prophecy fulfilled. When God says it, it's going to happen. We don't know when, but it will. Now that brings us to this story of Abijah that I want you to see. And I think it has some very important impact for us today. Now, starting in uh, 1 Kings chapter 22 in verse 51. And Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned Two years over Israel. Now, that's rather short reign. Only two years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh, walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So he served Baal, and he worshipped him, and he provoked the Lord God to anger according to all that his father had done. Now, I want you to see this because this is interesting. With God, many times, a person, a community, a nation, a church will do things to provoke him. And he will become angry. But his, angry, his anger will be under control. And then there will come a point where you do something, or they do something, and God says, that's it. You have now gone too far. And, you know, Julie tells me that all the time. And uh, so I'm familiar with how that works. So clearly, Ahaziah, clearly Ahaziah did not learn from the mistakes of his father or from the evil 
perpetrated upon Israel by his mother Jezebel. And he continued to lead Israel in the worship of pagan gods, and particularly Baal. And it angered God that he continued doing that. He should have known better. Here there was a prophecy about his father and his mother that came true exactly, and he ignores it. So he's up in his chambers, in his palace, up in the top level, upper chamber, and he falls. And he falls onto the latticework that is surrounding it. And the latticework breaks. Notice in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria. And he became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them. Now we're going to stop there just a second. This word, ill, I thought it was mistranslated at first. I thought it would be injured. He didn't become ill or sick because he fell through. He became injured because he fell through. But as I looked at it carefully, that's, it doesn't mean injured. It becomes diseased or ill or sick. And what most scholars believe the situation is, he was injured, but as a result of his injury, he developed an infection of some kind. And, you know, if you don't have the kind of... Uh, medicines we have available today, you get infected, you can have a serious problem. That's what happened. And now he's in his bed, he's got a fever and all these other things from this infection. So what is he going to do? Well, let's look what he did. So he sent messengers and he said to them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. Now let's stop there just a second because we need to understand some things. Who is the God that he worships? Baal. He didn't say, go to Baal, go to the prophetess. I mean, Jezebel's still alive. She's the high priestess of Baal. Or her father up in Sidon is the high priest of Baal. He didn't say, go up there and find out whether I'm going to survive or not. He said to go to Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron, in the big worship center they had there for this particular God. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's very simple, really. If you study on some things, you find that they had amassed at that place in Ekron. And you remember, Ekron is one of the five major cities of the Philistine nation. At that location, they had developed or, or gathered a number of seers and prophets and prophetess who could predict the future. Now, wait a second. Can pagan priests or priestesses predict the future? Before you answer that question, let me ask you this. Can pagan sorcerers throw their staff down on the ground and have it become a snake? Well, that happened, didn't it, in, uh, when Moses went back to tell Pharaoh to leave? that the children of Israel should be allowed to leave. And they can. Why? Because in some respects, Satan knows the future. In other respects, he can create the future, so to speak. Satan probably could have predicted that he was going to have Jesus killed on the cross because that was his plan. He wanted to kill the Messiah. He thought he would win if he killed Jesus. You know, Jesus put himself in a vulnerable place taking on humanity, and he thought he'd won. And so that is what's going on. There is demonic 
occultic activity centered there in Ekron. It may have been the highest center of that kind of thing going on at that time. So because they are so accurate in some of their predictions, he says, I want you guys to go and ask whether I'm going to survive. Find out. Now, who is this guy, Beelzebub? Well, let's look at uh, what he, they say he looks like. You see, Baal means Lord or God. Zebub means flies. This is the Lord of the flies. This is where Joseph Conrad got his title to his book. Now, this is an artist's rendering of Beelzebub. He's rather ugly looking cuss. But be that as it may, that's where they were going. Yes, ma'am. Do you think that, that, that maybe because of his affection, he had the flies surrounding him? I don't know. Maybe that could be. I never thought of that. But be that as it may, this was the place that would make the predictions. Now, he's there, and he's looking, and they are going because of uh, their demonic activity. Now, here's what I want to ask you. How does God look at this? Does he have any, does he said anything about something like this? Oh, I think he has. If you were to look in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, starting in verse 9, look what it says. Uh, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to intimidate the detestable things of those nations. So he's saying there are certain things that are detestable to God. What does that mean, detestable? Foul, repulsive, makes you want to puke, so to speak. And that's what God's saying. These are detestable things. What are these detestable? There shall not be found among you one who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. What was that? That was involved with Molech. That was the ancient way of abortion. Child's born, you sacrifice him to God by killing him because you don't want the child. That's, they didn't know, have the uh, ability to kill the child before it was born then. And you see what God's saying about abortion? He is not against it. It makes him sick to his stomach. But let's go on. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritualist, uh, one who speaks... Uh, or calls up the dead, for whoever does these things is detestable to Yahweh. And because of these detestable things, Yahweh your God will drive them out before you. That's rather strong language, isn't it? Well, is that the only place? No. When you look over in Leviticus, one book back, it says, You shall not eat anything with blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out or, or be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. In Leviticus 20, verse 6, it says, And as for the person who turns to mediums or spiritists, now he's not talking about the mediums themselves or the spirits, but someone who uses them to play the harlot with them. What is he talking about? Spiritual adultery. This is another God. And if I'm your God and you go to another God, that is considered spiritual adultery in my eyes, and it's harlotry, and he speaks very strongly about that. I will also set my face against that person and cut him off from among his people. Now, 
Let me ask you this first. Would God ever really do that? Well, let's look in 2 Kings chapter 21. We're going to start, we're going to look at several verses here. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He made his son pass through the fire. He practiced witchcraft, and he used divination. And he dealt with mediums and spiritists. And he did, did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now Yahweh spoke through his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh of Judah has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols, therefore the Lord, the, the God of Israel said, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And uh, I will stretch out over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it over to dry. Now, did you hear that? Like someone wipes out a dish of any kind of residue and cleans it and sets it upside down to dry. That's what he says he's going to do. And he did. Now, question Vera. It's not a question. I was thinking about that on that Deuteronomy, that verse 12, King James says, because of these abominations of Lord, like I'll tell God, you them before thee. Let me think of, we have an invasion in the south of this country along the border. And it's almost like they're the ones that are being used to drive us. Did you all hear that? We're, have, we're going to see whether we are involved in this kind of thing. But if so, why wouldn't God invade us? And yet, maybe we are being invaded from the south. One other passage I want to share with you, one from the New Testament, where Paul has come into a town, that a city that is involved in this kind of satanic worship. And he says, Many also of those who believe kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, here's the thing. Should we be concerned about any of this where we live in our time? Jan. On Thursday, September the 8th, in the Washington Times, Jonathan Kahn wrote an article that's in, in the, that, and in that article he says <clears throat> the pagan gods of the... Of the Old Testament have taken over yes. in America. He talks about the pagan gods that exist in America and that's talking about. And they are in America. All right. Well, in some places of the world, they have open conferences for spiritists. Jerry? Uh, now, Vera, look at that. Is that in Spanish or Portuguese? Spanish. And I think, but that is down in South America, I believe, where they were having it. We don't have anything like that up here, Jerry. Oh, well, there is a conference here. But you notice how they, they bridging spirituality and health. A production of spiritual alliances. Oh, doesn't that sound good? And yet, spiritism is going on in our nation. Is it just spiritism? Well, no. Here we have mediums. And this is going on all over. And divination. And you begin to see this divination as they look at these 
hands and they do this. Now we have sorcery. But now, come on. Everybody knows there's nothing wrong with Mickey. I mean, he's a cute little cuddly mouse. Uh, even Julie's not scared of Mickey Mouse, right? Uh, she doesn't like mice. But Mickey, I think she... But Mickey is updated now. Let's see. Now you see Disney's uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice that used to be Mickey. Now it's that guy. You notice what the S looks like. Who does that speak of, the dragon? Oh, yes. You begin to see that. Now, here's your uh, mediums, and they're uh, crystal balls, and they're doing all that kind of stuff, and it's going on in our nation. And it's, we may have sorcerer stuff, but do we have witches? Well, I'm just going to show you a little roll call here of witches as you, uh, first of all, they're saying, can you drive a stick? Uh, you know, it's an automobile, right? Oh, no. He says, yes, I can drive a stick. And another one on the other side. This is on T-shirts now that people are wearing. Now, let's talk about self-proclaimed witches. They're just a plethora of them. She looks kind of innocent. But how about this one? Oh, now it's getting a little worse. And let's hit another one and another now this one, she looks pretty innocent. Let me tell you, she's anything but. Uh, and now you see, as these witches just over and over, as you look in the, in the internet, you can find picture after picture of these witches. They're all over our nation. And you may not see them right now, but they are. So what you're saying is, most Christians, they're not serious about this, and they don't recognize how bad it really is. All right. Yes, sir. Witchcraft is present here in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. When I was running the parks out in Joe Pool, we used to have a problem with them practicing in one of our parks out there. They do it. It's amazing. But now, and their big day is coming up, by the way. Julie. I was going to say where this kind of hits the church in the eye is that we tolerated the fantasy of this in movies yeah. for 30 years. I mean, yeah. we have tolerated it. And that's cooked our young people and gotten them accustomed. So now it's not weird to them. It's just something that they are used to. We don't stand up at the very start. Then people want to say, well, that's just innocent. That little mouse is not going to hurt anybody. No, it is coming. And it has come. Now, are we getting something like that, though, in our government? There was a recent appointment to the CDC. I want you to see this guy. He's been appointed as Demetrius. I can't pronounce his last name. But he's in the CDC, and he is going to, uh, you know, be in charge of a number of things. And he seems to be smart, seems to be arrogant. Uh, I mean, erudite, and you, you look at him, and, and it's, but now things have changed. Now he's wearing that leather vest that's a satanic upside-down uh, star. Let's look at another one. Now you see his body is covering with tattoos, many of which are Satan. He's a Satanist, and he's coming on. And now this is him with one of his friends, uh, quote-unquote. And again... Uh, now he's just him at a party with one of his friends. 
By the way, that one on his right or his left is male, so that you... Now, you can really know somebody by their friends, and there he is in the middle uh, with the rest of his friends. And that's somebody in charge of the CDC. That's what Biden does. Well, that's what paganism does, and we need to see it and recognize it. Is there any other picture, Jerry? Oh, yes. Here you have a psychic store. Now, you can't see it because of the shadow, but right up next to the 203 to the left of it is an open sign. I took this picture between 7 o'clock Saturday morning and 7.30 Saturday morning. They're open 24 hours a day, four blocks from my house. Four blocks. They're everywhere. You know, I thought one day, I said, I'm going to go up there and I'm just going to see what that place is like. To which Julie responded, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> you don't know what you're dealing with if you think you're going to go in there. So did I go in there, Chris? No. No, I didn't. Now, let's move on because this is background for something I want you to see. God's response. He sent his messengers to Beelzebub to find out whether he's going to survive or not, whether he's going to come back from this disease. What is God going to do? Well, we're going to see in 2 Kings 1.3, but the angel of the Lord, now who's that? Jesus. If you look in Exodus 3 or uh, Genesis 22, you'll confirm it to you. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron? Now, Therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed in which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed, and he goes to deliver this message uh, to these people. But more to the point, uh, the result was caused by Ahaziah's decision. Do you notice, I want you to see it in two places. Here I haven't colored it for you, but no, so... Right here, I want you to see, do you see the therefore? Verse 4, now therefore. What does therefore mean? Because of, as a result of, here's, here's the cause, and now here's the result. Therefore, you're not going to survive. What is the thing that he did that caused, was it worshiping Baal? No. It was sending messengers to Ekron to inquire of the demonic presence there. That angers God more than anything. So let's go on. And I want you to see this now, verse 6. Then they said to him, so they return to the king, and then they said to him, a man came up to us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, uh, you shall not come down from the bed in which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now let's stop there for just a moment. These messengers come back to King Ahaziah and they say to him, King, and he says, wait, have you made it to Ekron yet? There's not enough time. No, we didn't, we didn't go. Why the heck not? Well, 
we were on our way and this man came up to us. And he said, are you going there because there's no God in Israel? And you need to go tell the king this. And he gave us this message. You're not going to survive. Now, did the king get mad at him? No. Did he say, it's ridiculous, you shouldn't have listened to him, you should have done what I said? No. Look what he said, and he said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound around his loins. And he said, it was Elijah the Tishbite. That was the description that told him who it was. Obviously, the son of Ahab and Jezebel are familiar with this man, Elijah the Tishbite. And that's important to remember because we're going to see it's going to direct his activities. He knows exactly now who he's dealing with and what is going on. Now, had Ahab dealt with Elijah before, did he lose or win? Ahab. He lost. He was beaten badly. Has Jezebel dealt with Elijah before? Did she win or did she lose? Oh, no, she won. She sent him running in a panic. What did she do? She intimidated him. And he allowed Jezebel to intimidate him. Now, what should Ahaziah do now in the face of this confrontation? Find a way to intimidate Elijah again. That's the path to success. His mother taught him that. Right? So what is he going to do? Well, let's look at that. I want you to look in verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 and his 50. And he, that is the, the captain, went up to Elijah. And behold, he was sitting on the top of a hill. Now, you can't see this in English, but basically he and his men surrounded the hill. And so once they're surrounded, then he approaches Elijah up on the top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. In other words, the king's in control here. Here's his command to you. You better obey it. How does Elijah respond? Elijah replied to the captain of the 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50. And boom, fire comes down from heaven and consumes him in his 50. Could Elijah have done that meeting Jezebel out in the street earlier? I'm convinced he could have. But he allowed himself to become intimidated, and he panicked, and he ran. But now he's been rehardened, retooled, and rehoned. Is this man going to run now? Well, he didn't that time. So, 2 Kings 1:11. So he again, that is King Ahijah, Again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And that captain said to Elijah, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Now, Don, do you think that uh, his change of wording, not come down, but come down quickly, will help at all his cause? Well, let's see what, what happened here. Elijah replied to him, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed he and his 50. You know, that guy would have been better off if he had not told him that he was a man of God to start with. But anyway, this was the second time. And it's not going too well 
for uh, the king this time. It seems like Elijah is not being intimidated. So he sends a third commander. Verse 13. So he again sent the, the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And when the third captain of the 50 went up, he came and he bowed down on his knees before Elijah. Now, this is a smart commander. He is obviously aware of what the enemy's capabilities are. And he knows what he's doing. Yet he also knows he'll get in trouble if he returns empty-handed. So he bows down on his knees to Elijah and begged him and said, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50s in their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he rose and went down with him to the king. So when it was time to act, who told Elijah what to do? Jesus. So for this third time, now God responds. And the appropriate respect for Elijah's God has been shown. Now, what is happening here? Although he's going with him, he's walking into a lion's den. And on the hill... He's in his spot. In the palace, he's on the other side's spot. Uh, the worshippers of Baal. But has he had any experience in this before to guide him? He'd walked into the palace of Ahab and said, it's not going to rain again, my word. He'd met Ahab out in the wilderness and challenged him to a battle of, on Mount Carmel. And then on the mound again, when he was facing down 850 prophets of Baal and the Asherah, he, he stood strong. So again, notice that the Son of God is communicating directly with Elijah, speaking to his heart. Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, some of us don't have to imagine because it's happened to us. And if it hasn't happened to you, there's a reason. And I would try and explain to you the reason based on what happened in the cave. Do you remember in the cave where Elijah was when he was on Mount Horeb that God told him to come out to the front of the cave? And I'm assuming that he did for a minute. And then things started happening. And the wind was blowing the rocks around. There was earthquakes and there was fire. And the next time we see Elijah, where was he then? Back in the back of the cave. Then he heard a sound. And he said it's like a gentle blowing which is the only way in Hebrew you could describe someone where you can hear someone whispering, but you can't understand what they're saying. You familiar with that? You ever heard somebody whisper, but you can't understand what they're saying? How do you change that and get where you can understand what they're saying? Get closer. And so he puts his mantle over his face and goes back out to, the, and then he can hear in that soft, gentle voice, what God is saying to him. In the same way, many times we stay in the back of the cave, instead of going out to the front, into the presence of God, seeking his presence so we can hear what he's trying to say to us. And Elijah demonstrates that. And now it's easy for him. And Jesus speaks to him. So let's pick it up in verse 16. 
Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, it is, because, is it because there is no god of Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. Because he had no son, Joram became king in his place in the second year of Joram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now, there is a key word in this verse. Can anybody tell me what the key word is here? Because. That's cause and effect. What was the cause he was consulting with demonic gods, mediums, sorcerers, witches, etc. Does God expect us to play around with that kind of stuff? Does he instead expect us to challenge that? Now, we have the word of God on our side because it has clearly instructed us, has it not? These things are detestable to me. Now... If they are detestable to God, what should they also be? Detestable to us. Exactly. And we need to do that. We should not allow these perversions to be in our land, to be in our communities. Now, notice something else. Elijah is now back to the fearless man of conviction that he once was. You see, a man of true conviction is willing to face unpleasant circumstances, threatening situations and conditions in order to obey his God. And as a result of that, a man of God of conviction is amazingly calm in the face of a storm because he knows who is, who has his back. Sometimes when you do that, there's a strong possibility of personal unpopularity, disdain, character attack, even physical attack. But that doesn't factor into this kind of man's decision. It does not. He stands boldly for his God. Nothing will deter a man of convictions whose passion is to obey God. That's what we have to have. Men and women of God who are going to obey no matter what the cost. Well, what if something bad happens? Who's in control of that? Exactly. And we need to understand that. Now, a few final things I want to share with you before we finish today. Do people today still seek to learn their future through the cultic or demonic practices? Many times what they learn will come true. Those who seek such insight are many times, they're just dupes. They just don't really know what's going on. They don't realize. I was involved in a lawsuit one time where this woman had spent over $10,000 the last year calling Psychic Hotline. Can you believe that? $10,000. We are, it's all over us. But these dupes who participate in this, they are going to be caught in the snare of the old deluder because he's been tricking us from the very, from, since the garden. We need to understand from the believer's perspective that this is, these demonic areas are enemy territory and they're quite dangerous. Quite dangerous. Now, 
I think the actions of Ahaziah have provided us with a setting that allows us to observe the spiritual greatness of this prophet and this leader now. You know, a man seems to always be greatest after his failure if he turns back to God. It's kind of like I have seen cars before where they come out of the factory and they're hot cars and they really perform well. But after a while, a craftsman gets a hold of it and he pulls that engine and he takes out a lot of the parts and puts in new, even better parts. And he puts that car back together and now it purrs like a kitten and it's amazing what it will do. In the same way, God deals with that in his men and women. And if you allow him to rebuild you spiritually after a failure, you can become stronger than you were before, his, before the failure occurred. Elijah showed little or no respect for the authority of the king. Why? Because the king showed no respect for his God. And we need to understand that. Elijah possessed great spiritual authority. How did he get it? He earned it by obeying. We need to learn that we earn spiritual authority by obeying. When he spoke, he spoke with great power, even to the end of calling fire down from heaven to do his bidding. And as a result, the Lord God of heaven spoke directly to him. I want God to speak directly to me. Then I need to be obedient. And his directions to Elijah were absolutely clear. We the reason we're studying Elijah is that we can have this kind of relationship with the Lord God in the midst of a highly pagan nation. We've demonstrated today the paganism that's going on in our country. And, and, and if I was going to show you all of it, it would take two or three Sundays. And we don't want to major on paganism. We want to major on godliness. You know, when they teach the secret service... You know, they're the main that does counterfeiting or opposes counterfeiting. They don't show them bogus bills. They show them real bills. So that they are so well versed in what a real $100 bill looks like that they can spot a phony one easy. In the same way, we don't need to study paganism. We need to study God's truth. And when we study God's truth, we can see then any variation. That's why God told Joshua in the first chapter of Joshua, in, uh, starting in verse 8, follow my word, don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right, stay right on what I'm saying to do, and you will be successful in what I've called you to do. In the same way, that promise is available to us. But we must learn the word of God. Now let me just tell you, before I finish, I have been studying ahead because after we finish uh, this time in Elijah, you know where we're going? 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.15, there is the, second, the first, pardon me, the second verse I memorized as a child. My mother was actively involved in my memorization process, and she had me memorize John 3.16 first. But then after John 3.16, it was 2 Timothy, and I think it had something to do with what she wanted for me. But it's very simple. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, I have to tell you, in those days, the only Bible I had was King James. We didn't have some of the more modern versions that we have. Here's the way it reads in, in the New American Standard today. 
In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, let me talk to you about several things here before we finish, because uh, I, I love this verse. Be diligent. You know, in the King James, it says study. Be diligent is the motivation. Study is the action that results from that motivation. And this is not a suggestion or a recommendation. This is a command. It's in the imperative in the Greek. And you look at it, and it says, to present yourselves approved to God. That is, who do we seek approval of? Should I seek approval of Julie? No. God. He, of course, if you're married to a godly wife, if you, God has approved of you, then your wife will. Do I seek approval of what I say and do from this class? No. What about the people I work with? No. God. His approval is what I should be aiming at all of the time. So, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman. Now, I want you to understand this word workman. We have two words that this could, word could be translated from. Now, I take that back. One word that this word could be translated to in English from the Greek, and that's workman. There's another word we have that's close. It's craftsman. But craftsman speaks of the skill of the performer. That's not what this word is talking about. This is talking about the laborious nature. Now, I want you to think about this real quickly. Uh, is it difficult studying the scriptures? Well, we're having to go back and look at something that was written in the New Testament uh, 2,000 years ago. Something written in the Old Testament 3,500 years ago. Something that if we were looking at the book of Job 4,100 years ago. We have trouble, well, let me put it this way. Those erudite people on the Supreme Court have trouble understanding what was said in a document written 200 years ago. And yet we're going back thousands of years, yes. We also understand that document, our Constitution, was written in English. We're having to, to read and understand something that was written in Koine Greek in the New Testament, and it was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament. And we're... We had an American culture that we were looking at when the Constitution was written. It was an early American culture, but American culture nonetheless. We're looking at a Greco-Roman culture for the New Testament and an ancient Near Eastern uh, culture in the Old Testament. That creates difficulty in understanding. It takes work. It doesn't come easy. It's hard. We've got to spend time doing that. But then what does he say? Accurately handling the word of truth. Two things I want to tell you from that. Number one, the source of truth we have is in the Bible. Some of you say, no, it's from God. No, this is God's word. This is the source of truth. If we hear anything, quote unquote, from God that differs from what this scripture says, somebody is lying to you. This is truth. But accurately handling it. This is a hard word to understand. It's one of these words that this is the only time it is used in the Bible. It's a compound word, orthotomeo. And what it means is this. Ortho means to correct, to straighten. In fact, what word do we get from that in English? Orthodontist. What does the orthodontist do? Straighten or correct your teeth. Ortho, tomeo, 
means uh, to sharpen or to cut. Or to cut sharp. In fact, it's used in another passage similar to this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You know, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any sharper. Tameo, or tamas, the noun form there. So what we've got here is we need to train ourselves to accurately handle the Word of God. To be able to respond. That's hard work, he says. But you have to do it. God is calling you to work hard to do it. That's what we need to do. That's what this class is supposed to be all about. Training ourselves to do that. I got carried away there. I'm sorry. Uh, let Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for the time that we could spend here together. That we can look at this man's life as it's soon going to be ended by you removing him. But Father, help us to learn how to live in a pagan world. And how we have to be men and women of conviction that stand up no matter what, seeking only your approval. Not allowing anyone to deter us from what you have called us to do. Father, I also pray for our nation. We are in such trouble and such spiritual ugliness is there. And I know it has become detestable to your nostrils and making your stomach turn over if that ever happens to you. And so, Father, I pray that you will raise up an army of intercessors to pray for a revival in our nation. I pray that you'll raise up a, a, a strong cadre of prophets who will point out fearlessly the sin in our nation and not back down or allow themselves to be intimidated by what the world will come back and say to them and about them and try to do to them. And that you will raise up, Father, a missionary group to win America back to you. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.